Welcome to the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. In this series, we'll bring you 12 of the best talks from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. This episode is called Human Traffickers, Organised Criminals or Neighbours, Boyfriends and Aunties. Welcome to this uh, webinar titled Human Traffickers, Organised Criminals or Neighbours, Boyfriends and Aunties. <clears throat> My name is Borisov Gerasimov, and I'm the Communications and Advocacy Coordinator at the Global Alliance Against Trafficking Women. We are an international NGO network comprising around 100 members from all regions of the world uh, who advocate for the human rights of migrants and trafficked persons. Uh, before I introduce our speakers at this webinar, uh, I would like to say a few uh, words about what we are going to discuss today. Um, one of the activities that we implement at the Global Alliance is uh, that we publish uh, the Anti-Trafficking Review, which is uh, the first open access peer-reviewed journal that focuses specifically on the issue of human trafficking in its broader context and intersections with gender, migration, labor and development. The journal was founded in 2012 or in 2011, and the first issue was published in 2012. Um, we publish two issues per year, uh, one in April and one in September, with each issue dedicated to a specific predetermined theme that we have identified as um, under-researched or uh, current, and each issue has a guest editor who is an academic and a specialist um, in the topic. So the, the webinar that uh, we are holding today is uh, we'll present findings from the issue that we published in April. Um, the theme of that special issue was traffickers and the guest editor was Marika Makadam, uh, who is uh, here in this webinar and I will introduce in a moment. You can find the issue, I, I um, uh, just pasted the, uh, the URL of the issue uh, in the chat box and you can read all the articles that we will be discussing and the others um, uh, via that link. All the articles are uh, open access. So with that, let me introduce our uh, three speakers. Marika Makadam is an independent international law and policy advisor. She has worked globally with the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, the International Organization for Migration, the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, the Nexus Institute, the Bali Regional Process, uh, the Bali Process Regional Support Office, and the ASEAN Australia Counter Trafficking Program, among others. On human trafficking specifically, she has trained law enforcers, prosecutors, and judges, addressed senators and parliamentarians, and written extensively on the challenges of implementing international law in practice. Hello, Marika, and thank you for uh, being here. Our next speaker is Dr. Nerida Chazao. Uh, she is a lecturer in criminology and sociology at the University of South Australia. Her research specializes in uh, her research specialties include gender violence, human trafficking, forced marriage, and international criminal justice. She has conducted research on the International Criminal Court and is currently undertaking research for the Australian Red Cross working at victim, at victim support for modern slavery crimes. Uh, hello, Nerida, and thank you for joining uh, this event. 
And <clears throat> the th our uh, third uh, presenter today is Dr. Caitlin Windham. She is the Resources and Partnership Leader at Bo Dragon Children's Foundation, uh, which is an NGO in Vietnam. She has been living in Vietnam since 2001, working for a range of NGOs and UN agencies addressing poverty, disability, and human trafficking. Caitlin is inspired to challenge and fight inequality and justice in all its forms, and in her current position, she oversees Blue Dragon's anti-trafficking work, including research and analysis to contribute to the body of knowledge and enhance the effectiveness of counter-trafficking initiatives. Caitlin holds a PhD in public policy from the Central European University. Hi, Caitlin, and thank you also for uh, joining this event today. Um, so I have, um, so the, the three speakers will, uh, will uh, present uh, information, Caitlin and Merida from their articles and Marika from uh, the special issue I mentioned um, as a whole. Um, and we have planned this for around 30 minutes, which means that um, at the end we will have uh, 30 to 40 minutes for questions and, uh, and answers from the audience. If you have any questions, uh, please send them um, either the, via the chat or via the Q&A um, function in Zoom or whatever you find uh, more convenient. So with that, um, I will invite uh, Nerida first to uh, to speak about uh, her article. This is uh, uh, an article co-written together with Alexandra Baxter. And the article title uh, is, it's about survival, court constructions of socioeconomic constraints on women offenders in Australian human trafficking for sexual exploitation cases. Over to you, Nerida. Excellent. Thank you, Boris Love, for that uh, introduction. Um, so, as Boris Lab mentioned, I will be talking about my article in the Anti-Trafficking Review, which I co-authored with Alexandra Baxter. Um, and I'm just going to start by talking a little bit about a common misconception about trafficking offenders, um, and that is that they are predominantly men. But as, as research has shown, women also make up a large number of human traffickers. In this presentation, I'll discuss the findings of the article, and the main points that I will discuss are the unique motivation for women offenders and the way that socioeconomic constraints, in particular the need to financially support family members, often define women's offending and victimisation in human trafficking for sexual exploitation. I will also examine the way courts consider these constraints in sentencing offenders in Australia. So in Australia, between 2005 and 2019, 16 individuals have been charged with human trafficking related offences involving sexual exploitation. 10 of these are women, meaning that 63% of offenders convicted of human trafficking for sexual exploitation in Australia have been women. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime has consistently reported that women feature highly among those prosecuted and convicted for offences relating to trafficking of persons, especially when compared with other areas of crime. UNODC also notes that there is a strong link between previous involvement in the sex industry and future involvement in trafficking networks. As such, women traffickers are particularly prevalent in human trafficking for sexual exploitation. The percentages of women trafficking offenders has remained consistently higher over the past decade. And an increasing body of literature has recognised that women play a prominent role as both victims and offenders of human trafficking for sexual exploitation. 
These statistics challenge traditional representations of traffickers as being male organised crime figures who prey on women as their vulnerable victims. As this data shows, women are not solely the victim of these crimes, but also facilitators of trafficking and often both. Recent research has demonstrated that the line between victimisation and offending in human trafficking is often blurred. In Australia, for example, five of the 10 women convicted of human trafficking for sexual exploitation offences were prior victims of human trafficking themselves. Consequently, it's important to understand the factors that drive both women's victimisation and also offending. So this project that I'm discussing today and that formed the basis of our article is part of a broader project which examined how courts construct the agency of women offenders in human trafficking for sexual exploitation cases in Australia. The project involved an analysis of the sentencing remarks of the 10 cases of human trafficking for sexual exploitation involving women offenders in Australia, semi-structured qualitative interviews with six judges who were involved in these cases and interviews with five Australian anti-trafficking experts. What we found that is that one of the main themes that emerged from this project related to the key role that socioeconomic constraints underpinned by the need to support dependents or family members played in women's victimisation and then their consequent offending. Literature on women's offending highlights the need to explore familial burden as a considerable so structural constraint in offenders' lives that forms part of a wider background defined by broad socio-political constraints. Structural constraints pose limitations on behaviour and the level of choice an individual has. They can shape an individual's life, including decisions to engage in criminal or deviant behaviours or responses to victimisation. Oppressive structures reshape and confine women's goals. A lack of viable economic opportunities resulting in a lack of financial security, coupled with a financial burden to support family members, fuels the migration of women in search of better work opportunities. This process, combined with the societal and cultural norms which act to reinforce gender inequalities, render women vulnerable to the trafficking process in both victimisation and offending. So examining the 10 women convicted of human trafficking for sexual exploitation in Australia, you can see that eight of the sentencing remarks discuss the socioeconomic constraints and financial factors associated with women's background and offending. The two remaining cases did not explicitly mention socioeconomic factors and provided scant information on the offenders' backgrounds, but these were some of the earliest human trafficking for sexual exploitation convictions in Australia, and there was a lot less known about the patterns of offending relevant to prosecution and sentencing at this time. We can see that overall 60% of the sentencing remarks discussed a woman's financial burden to support family members combined with economic disadvantage in the context of their offending, as this table indicates. Poverty and disadvantage were specifically discussed in six of the cases. One trafficking expert interviewed suggests that many women who were trafficked were trying to make money, save money and send it home to siblings or children. That's where they transferred their power to, saving other people in the family. So just to move on and, and, and look at some of the um, quotations from the interviews and the um, excerpts from the sentencing remarks that we analysed. Um, and what we can see reflected in the sentencing remarks is that financial burdens form structural socioeconomic constraints that really shaped trafficking offending for women. As an anti-trafficking expert stated, women are forced to make money to survive or sometimes they are forced to stay with violent partners who are continuing to exploit them, even using them to engage other women to be able to exploit them for financial reasons. 
In considering these structural constraints, it's important not to deny women agency. Outside of court, these offenders were survivors using the tools and knowledge they possessed to improve their lives after experiencing significant constraint. One expert with experience with cases of human trafficking for sexual exploitation concluded during an interview that these cases were about survival. It was about a need to provide money for family members and extended families. In the case of Kambut, a judge summarised the offender's situation, stating she had sacrificed her education so that her sister who had health problems could go to school. Kambut worked in any way that she could to help the family survive. She would find fruit and vegetables to sell at the markets, cook and do housework, cleaning and washing clothes. When it came to her own children, she applied this same selflessness and did everything she could to give the children the best life and education possible. During an interview, one judge considered poverty a large motivating force for the victims choosing to undertake sex work. In the cases analysed, the judge suggested that a woman's decision to come to Australia under contract was the impact of poverty on people. They willingly came to earn money. This, another judge could also see the impact of poverty on the offenders and their decision to exploit others rather than be the ones exploited, stating, people become the trafficker just out of economic necessity. A person comes over here as a slave, she then works very hard and builds up money and I suppose she opens brothel herself and says, we'll do the same thing. I'm sure that's how it happened. She realised that she's been able to make her way, not the normal recommended way, but when you've come from a place of poverty, that's what happens, isn't it? So considering how some of these constraints are um, dealt with in sentencing, what we see is that while an offender's socioeconomic background gives context to offending in court, a nuanced understanding of the centrality of constraining structures is often absent in sentencing offenders. For example, the author of a pre-sentencing report tended in NAMHIP sentencing stated, the offender presented as a person who has chosen to earn a living on the fringe of society, appearing to take an amoral view of her profession, sex work, as the best available means to provide for her family. She appears to have few external resources, but for years has displayed an apparently consistent level of internal fortitude. She has displayed a lifelong commitment to her birth family and has, by her account, been driven by the need to financially support her parents and later her daughter. Here, although the financial burden NetPit faces acknowledged, her choices are prioritised over the constraint. In addition, an offender's previous experience of victimisation tended to heighten her culpability with some judges. For example, when interviewed, one judge stated, you reckon a person who's been through it wouldn't then subject others to it. I'm not saying that it's aggravated by the fact that they've previously been a victim, but it's certainly not a factor that's going to reduce the matter. You would ask yourself, if you had been in slavery yourself, why would you impose it on anyone else? And similarly, another judge stated, she had experienced that herself and then she put that on somebody else. It's more serious, it's more culpable. So on one hand, her experiences justified some sympathy, but on the other hand, those experiences should have led her to reject that imposition on others. These quotes show the enduring prominence of choice as an explanation for offending. An offender's socio and economic constraints and their burdens for supporting dependents rarely mitigated sentences. In acknowledging the role that structural constraints, such as familial burden, play in shaping women's offending, it's also important to avoid removing women's agency altogether. For both victims and offenders, recognising that women make considered choices to better their circumstances is key to understanding the complexities of human trafficking. 
Doing so will shed light on the structural forces and global inequalities that contribute to trafficking while also incorporating nuanced understandings of gendered structural constraints when exploring women's offending in human trafficking for sexual exploitation. This point is supported by criminologists who argue that women's involvement in crime should be further analysed within the context of their gendered social positioning, which produces the framework for their individual decisions and their attempts to exercise control over their behaviour. As this analysis has shown, women do have agency in shaping their lives. However, they make choices within socioeconomic constraints, influenced by structural factors at both a micro and macro level that lead them to become both victims and defending of trafficking for sexual exploitation. Thank you. Thank you for uh, sharing these insights from Australia uh, and how the, the important points that we often forget, which I think uh, the, the main points was that women are also offenders in human trafficking. And um, and what is, I, I think, maybe not so well known in the field is that um, uh, traffickers often act out of poverty, let's say. And, and I think these your, your findings have a lot, of, uh, a lot in common with um, the findings of Caitlin. And I will now invite Caitlin to, uh, to speak um, about her findings, which were published um, in the article what do we know about human traffickers in Vietnam? Uh, Caitlin, over to you. Um, thank you very much for uh, being part. Of, I'm very happy to be part of this panel. Um, we at Blue Dragon conducted some research uh, to analyze some court cases to find out more about human traffickers. And the motivation behind this research or behind this project was to understand more about traffickers so that we could more effectively prevent human trafficking. We wanted to be able to educate community, vulnerable communities about who traffickers were and the kinds of um, modus operandi that they were using so that they could effectively protect themselves from the, from the trafficking. So uh, we were able to get access to over 100 court cases. Some of those uh, Blue Dragon lawyers had been involved uh, in representing the victims. So we had all the court paperwork because of that. And then there's also a source of information from the Supreme Court uh, where they post certain cases online uh, as examples. And so there were there were some, some tra human trafficking court cases there as well. So in total, that there was um, quite a good basis of data, 236 traffickers, and we analysed the information um, that was contained in the court paperwork about who the traffickers were and how they had operated in their crime. The majority of the cases um, actually it were involving cross-border trafficking, mainly into forced marriages in China, uh, but also some commercial sexual exploitation uh, in the region as well. So um, that, that of course, you know, the nature of analysing court case data means that it's, it's a via sample. You're only getting information about arrested and prosecuted traffickers um, and those who've been able to be successfully, and enough evidence has been successfully gathered to, to bring them to court. But, I do, you know, it, keeping that in mind is important, but um, it, it is still very useful data um, and it particularly gives us insight into the recruiters so the, the sort of frontline people who are recruiting um, mainly women and girls in this case uh, into human trafficking. 
So what did we find out? As, as Nerida has said, um, women are also traffickers. 40% of the cases in this particular data set were, were women and the other 60% were men. So it's fairly balanced, in fact, in terms of gender. Um, the traffickers we also know are um, very close to their victims. So you can see from these two um, these two maps, the the orange is where the traffickers the traffickers' home province, and the and the blue is the victims' home province, and they they match very closely. And in fact, sixty two percent of the victims were trafficked by someone they knew. Um, generally someone fairly close, often even in the same village. So extended family or um, friends, neighbours, uh, in some cases even uh, school colleagues. Um, so it's usually not a foreign stranger who who is kidnapping or, or um, tricking their victim. It's it's generally someone that the victim already knows. And so it's very easy to build trust and, and uh, deceive them. We also saw um, amongst both the men and the women, as, as Nerida has already explained, that poverty and disadvantage is really driving the, the decision to become a trafficker and the, the reason that people are committing these crimes. So most of the traffickers uh, were very similar to their victims in terms of um, their educational background. In fact, of the 76% of traffickers who were illiterate or didn't complete school, 16% were illiterate, so quite a high number. Um, and that is a demonstration of the sort of social disadvantage that they face because 65% of the traffickers were from ethnic minorities who tend to live in very remote mountainous areas and uh, do not have the same level of access to public services like health, education, um, and also very limited economic opportunities in those uh, those remote rural mountainous areas. So definitely we don't have information on their the household income or anything like that, but based on the other information that we do have, we can say that uh, many of these traffickers, the majority of these traffickers are coming from very poor areas and very poor families. Um, as I've already mentioned, 62% of the victims knew their trafficker already, and 34% of the victims were recruited through online means. So um, this is an increasing problem um, in Vietnam and, and probably in many other countries where traffickers will groom their victims through online methods uh, and then, then build up trust and potentially, you know, maybe groom them for months or even up to a year until they offer to meet. Um, and that's the case where the trafficking actually happens. And we were also very lucky to be able to get quite a lot of information about the um, the kinds of promises and, and the deceit that traffickers were using. Um, primarily, the, the, there are two key forms in Vietnam. The one is a job offer. Um, and that is obviously very attractive to these economically disadvantaged uh, communities. And the other one is is marriage, either formal marriage brokerage, um, or as I mentioned, online grooming by a by a boyfriend um, who then wants to meet and offers, you know, says that they will will marry the the young woman. So that's a, also a very big issue. The other thing that seems very important in terms of um, 
or the traffickers modus operandi is that many of these traffickers have very strong connections with the destination country, um, in this case, primarily China already. So, so quite a high percentage of them, 20% had either, either worked or had worked or had, um, were married to Chinese citizens living in China. And the others had uh, strong connections through family relationships or friends. Um, that this is also a reflection of the ethnic minority status of the traffickers because many of the ethnic minority groups, especially in the northern mountainous areas, are on both sides of the border. And, and actually, in many cases, they don't really recognise the border. They recognise that they have a Hmong community which lives in this particular area, some of which might actually officially is in China. Um, so there are there are strong connections there. And that is how the, you know, the, the networks that are able to traffic these women are formed. So it's less um, about organised crime networks or very, you know, big international syndicates or anything like that, and more about personal and family and ethnic relationships and, uh, and, and connections there. We can also see that, um, at least for these recruiters, the amount of money they're receiving for their crimes is not um, what we may think when we hear about the you know billions of dollars that are, are made by human trafficking. Um, the average amount was just over fifteen hundred dollars, so uh, it's it's not a hugely uh, big organised crime, big money industry, at least for these recruiters. However, having said that. $1,500 is a huge amount for a poor ethnic minority person um, in Vietnam. That's that's massive amounts of money. So it, for, for those particular individuals, it is a, a very attractive prospect and it is a way of getting out of poverty, as, as Nerida has mentioned. We can also see that, um, you know, these are, these are not official criminals. 79% um, of them, this was their first violation. So, uh, yeah, that's they're, they're opportunistic traffickers more than anything else. So what we, we find from this information is that, you know, as I said, we're talking about, at least from the recruiters, um, we're talking about neighbours, extended family, friends, ethnic communities who are who were involved in this. And both the traffickers and their victims are very similar in terms of their disadvantage and their vulnerability. Um, and whether they become, you know, are unfortunate enough to become a, a victim of human trafficking or also unfortunate to become uh, a trafficker um, because they the high chance of getting prosecuted, um, it's resulting from their vulnerability and their need for economic uh, advantage. So the full report, of course, the, the article is one way to get more information about this, but we also have uh, the report on our Blue Dragon website. Um, and there's a companion report, which is more focused on the victims. And that looks at the demographic characteristics and the situations of um, over 1,500 victims in Vietnam that Blue Dragon has supported. So you can get more information on our website, um, which is here. And then there's also the uh, the article in the anti-trafficking review that, that Boris Lava already posted the link for. And I'm very happy to answer questions or um, receive people's comments in the chat box or, or in the discussion session. Thank you very much. Thank you very much uh, to Caitlin for, for sharing your findings from Vietnam, which uh, were um, 
quite similar in a way to uh, to those that Nerida shared in Australia, and and we'll come back to to these findings later on. And um, uh, I will now invite the third speaker to uh, to speak for another about ten minutes, and then we will have around half an hour for discussion. Um, so with that, um, uh, Marika, I uh, I turn to you to to share a bit more about the other articles um, that we published in the special issue on traffickers. Uh, Nerida and Caitlin uh, spoke about their articles, but in total we published, I think it was 14 articles and one interview uh, from uh, many different uh, regions. Uh, we had uh, Hong Kong, um, Italy, Philipp uh, not Philippines, but um, the United States, um yeah so so can you uh, also say a bit what was found in uh, in the other articles sure thanks Borislav. thanks for the opportunity i'm conscious that i'm the third speaker with an australian accent which is something of a coincidence and i don't want the audience to think that this is australian dominated because it wasn't at all uh, and as you said bobby for this issue we really had some some wide geographical cover and the 14 um, pieces that we published. So it really was quite um, fascinating to get that global perspective. Um, so yes, it's my privilege to touch on some of the other articles and I hope I can do some of them justice, noting that their authors aren't with us today. Um, but I think you'll see from some of those pieces some uh, thematic overlaps with what our speakers have just um, presented prior to me. But I think what's um, key that emerges through a lot of them is that from um, some of the articles we see that the traffickers have very similar backgrounds to the victims themselves certainly in the articles that came to us and that was um, pieces that were dominated by um, trafficking for the purposes of sexual exploitation there was a real focus on that so we didn't receive many um, de dealing with other types of trafficking um, also the pieces were really focused on traffickers who are not part of organized crime groups but rather uh, as the other speakers said much like their victims come from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds or ethnic minorities um, or otherwise uh, marginalized Generalized groups with limited education and few prospects. So that was a theme um, that really emerged. So just to highlight a couple of the articles, um, Milena Rizzotti from Italy presented a really interesting piece based on her um, interviewing of 16 convicted traffickers um, from Nigeria. And again, those were traffickers of women into sexual exploitation. So she found that those women who were um, in Italian prisons had much the same trajectories as their victims. They had also migrated to Italy in search of a better life with the aim of uh, supporting their families. Um, and often they had started uh, through sex work. So once they had repaid their own debts, they began recruiting and sponsoring other Nigerian women to come to Italy. So the, the driver for both the traffickers and the victims was social mobility, in this case, to Europe. Um, she notes that um, they may have also formerly been victims themselves, uh, and the motivation was, of course, to escape socioeconomic hardship at home. Like their victims, they had also often migrated to Italy uh, with the help of someone else, 
um, paid a travel debt through sex work um, before then moving on to facilitate the sex work of others. So again, the, the link between who is a victim and who is an offender is blurred. Um, and very often those relationships were marked by uh, agreements between the facilitator and the person um, engaging in the, in the sex work, sometimes with um, juju rituals to bind them as, as well as debts. But those relationships were not necessarily seen as problematic to the victims, but often were, were seen as, as useful to them. And in many cases, once the debt had been paid, um, the oath was fulfilled and then they started their independent life uh, in Europe. Um, to move on to another area, uh, you mentioned as well, Borislav, that we had contributions from the United States. Uh, a piece by Amber Horning and Loretta Starlins uh, looked at what they termed oblivious sex traffickers uh, from New York City and Chicago, um, who unknowingly would fall within the US definition of what trafficking is. So in their piece, they looked at how drivers, pimps uh, and friends would very often fall within the ambit of what is considered to be trafficking. Um, and that included, for instance, teenagers um, who were facilitating the provision of sex by other teenagers. So we're talking about minors here. Um, and in that piece, they talk a lot about the conflation of pimping with trafficking. And like the former article I just discussed, very often who is a trafficker and who is a victim becomes quite um, blurred or conflated. Um, they mention too that sometimes uh, older women would recruit younger men to become their pimps. Um, and that was a, a topic that came up in, in the next article I'll, I'll speak to. Um, so they wouldn't necessarily recognize themselves as traffickers because they had been recruited into pimping. Also, they note that children and young adults uh, very often engaged in survival sex. So we're talking about runaway teenagers who were pimping their friends or their partners or their relatives. Um, and the authors there make a, a compelling argument that um, many of these situations should not result in severe trafficking sentences for what has gone on here in this complex um, landscape of survival. Um, they also describe um, some of the complex relationships between these actors in, in the US. And while traditionally recruiters are classified as um, traffickers, in, in their understanding of what they're doing, they would understand that they're themselves um, pimps. And so that's how the term oblivious sex traffickers um, comes into play when we're talking about people who may be playing small roles in transportation or recruitment or helping their friends to sell sex, um, but their actions unbeknownst to them would fall within the uh, United States legislation on counter trafficking. So again, this, this challenges our, our sort of media-driven TV understanding of, of traffickers um, and also challenges the notion of adults trafficking, um, recruiting young children into the sex industry when very often it's young people banding together um, in order to survive um, through uh, selling sex. And a lot of those topics again came up in the third article I'll speak briefly about, um, which was not so much an article but an interview that, that, that Boroslav and myself had the pleasure of um, carrying out with Armand King in, also in the United States. Um, Armand King classifies himself as a, as a former um, urban sex trafficker. 
Um, and he really painted a fascinating picture to us, a, a vivid picture of uh, disadvantage and uh, racism uh, that really fueled um, disadvantage and marginalization in the community he grew up in um, and um, sort of fueled the sex industry where he um, came of age. So he spent more than a decade as a pimp. Um, which would now be considered um, trafficking uh, when he was a teenager. And he talked about uh, poverty, gang culture, the drug epidemic, um, where pimping and prostitution were culturally sanctioned for teenagers uh, as a better alternative to some of the other options that involved um, gang violence or drug offences. Uh, and so pimping was considered to be a better option than those because it wasn't typified by violence, it wasn't typified by drugs. Um, he also, like the previous article, explained that in his community, um, men would be approached by women to become their pimps. So that was the, the direction of the recruitment, but it wouldn't be the men who would be considered to be um, victims of trafficking, rather they would be branded under existing law as being the traffickers. Um, again, the relationship here was not typified by, by violence. On the contrary, um, violence was considered to be a weakness. And he described that, you know, the, the, the able pimp would, would be more um, using communication skills. Uh, but of course, that would be understood in, in modern day terms in counter trafficking as coercion. So a lot of um, complex relationships there. And he also explained that anyone who was uh, exploiting minors would be chased out of the community in disgrace. So, so the relationships were not quite as um, movie-esque as perhaps um, many people uh, understand trafficking into the sex industry to be. Um, so in short, I think just to, to summarise with my final minute, there are no transnational organised crime groups that appeared in the article here. Instead, what we had had is really a mixed um, group of marginalised, disadvantaged, um, disorganised individuals who, much like their victims, are trying to um, survive and scrape a, a, um, scrape a living together from quite complex relationships. So I will leave it there, um, Boris Love, and again, look forward to the discussion that follows. And thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much, uh, Marika, for summarizing some of the uh, of the main points uh, of the other articles. So we have um, four questions by now, actually, uh, and I'm very happy about this. And um, and I think so, some of them um, are uh, partly reflect uh, the things that uh, we've been discussing, uh, and we'll get to these. But first, I have um, one question for uh for the three of you um and so the the findings uh, that you presented here uh, and we'll we'll get to that also um it's uh, one of the other questions we, we know that they are not necessarily necessarily representative of most or even uh half or whatever share of human trafficking offenders uh, at the same time, we know that there are organized criminals um, who engage in trafficking. At the same time, they are also not exceptional. The, uh, the UN, the most recent UN report on trafficking in persons from, I think, uh, 2020, um, also uh, mentions um, that roughly globally around one third of traffickers are women. 
uh, I think around half, they had classified as unorganized or loosely organized, um, but again, not, um, not as organized criminals in the sense of mafia syndicates, but um, yeah, um, also that they are uh, often from the same community or from the same town village as the victims. Um, and even that, at least in some regions, in some trafficking roles, uh, trafficking is not more profitable than a job in the formal economy or, you know, a legal job. Um, and, and I think, I believe the UN report um, referred to Southeast Asia in this uh, regard and that, for example, drug trafficking in Southeast Asia is more profitable than human trafficking. Um, but so, given let's let's say fo focusing on these findings um what would you say are the implications uh for first uh, prevention of human trafficking in the sense of prevention of offending um and then second prosecution of traffickers so uh, in in other words you know where, where what actions uh, do you see um possible or you know uh, desirable in these two areas um and now we'll start with you caitlin sure thank you so much um so yeah this is a really important uh implication from from this research that we've done and i think this is something that we you know as i mentioned blue dragon was looking into the you know who were the traffickers in order to better do prevention when we first started, we were thinking in terms of, you know, trying to educate potential victims so that they didn't become victims. But actually, due to the findings um, and finding that the traffickers were also very vulnerable and and poor and in need of economic support as well, we've we realized that, in fact, um, you know, prevention needs to target both victims and traffickers and that reducing vulnerability in these very disadvantaged communities, which in Vietnam, um, you know, the, the, as you could see from the maps, the, the communities that are affected are quite, um, quite geographically located, and we can actually identify quite easily where the vulnerable communities are. So I think some of the, you know, the, some of what we're doing now is, you know, targeting whole communities for um, vulnerability reduction, not just education. So yes, we educate people about, about tra human trafficking, but beyond that, we try and invest in livelihoods, schemes, um, vocational training, keeping kids in school so that they, they're able to get jobs in the formal economy later, um, and, and, and even higher education as well. We provide higher education scholarships. So, so basically trying to do significant vulnerability reduction and, and very targeted to potential traffickers, I think is, is a very important, um, part of, you know, what this, what this research is telling us. I'll stop there and let someone else jump in. And, and for, for prosecution. Yeah, so for prosecution, sorry, I forgot about that bit. Um, for prosecution, it's it, this is also very interesting. So what this shows us is that actually, you know, particularly for these um, frontline recruiters and the the friends, often it's friends and extended family of the of the victims, actually prosecuting through the court system and putting these people in jail um, may not be the best response. And that may actually increase their family's 
you know, vulnerability and and drive further exploitation. In fact, you know, so th that that can actually make things worse. So, I think it really raises some questions around um, the possibilities of having alternative justice approaches in human trafficking cases. Not to say that no human trafficker should ever be prosecuted. That's absolutely not the case. There there certainly are situations where you know, a jail sentence is, is a good thing and that there should be prosecution. But I think we need to consider um, justice more broadly. And if we consider the justice system as part of the prevention system, which we do, you know, we claim that prosecution will deter traffickers. Well, we actually have to think more broadly than that and and consider that maybe alternative justice um, or, you know, negotiation, um, some sort of compensation scheme that the traffickers can can you know work work off their debt to the family or, or some you know some sort of other um, justice systems that don't involve increasing that family's vulnerability is probably going to be a more effective preventive measure um, while still trying to achieve some justice for the victims, which is also very important. Thank you, Caitlin. Yes, we we were really interesting uh, interested in receiving something along these lines in terms of restorative justice uh, systems for uh, in the case of cases of trafficking but we didn't receive um, and, and I think uh, we didn't receive articles on this topic and I think maybe it's not sufficiently explored in the anti-trafficking field um, okay Nerida uh, same questions to you uh, what what these do these findings mean in terms of prevention and prosecution yeah, thank you. And thank you to the other presenters as well for those excellent um, presentations. And I agree with what Caitlin said about the vulnerability. Um, and I think that she's spoken perfectly about that. So I'll just touch on a different point, which is more related to um, what I presented on. And that was the fact that in Australia, uh, half of the women that we talked about had been victims themselves. Um, and Marika picked up on that point as well. And so did Caitlin in her presentation. And so I think that says a lot about prevention as well, in terms of where our prevention efforts lie in um, providing sufficient victim support for people who have been victims themselves and adequate identification of victims. We know that um, tr identifying trafficking victims is, is really hard. It's such a hidden crime. There's many reasons why uh, victims don't want to come forward. In Australia in particular, we know that our official government support program for victims is uh, linked to criminal justice outcomes and um, the sole referral pathway to that program is through the Australian Federal Police. So it's really a small number of victims that are coming um, through into official government support. So I think um, in terms of prevention, thinking about that victim-offender overlap, being able to help victims get out of those situations and receive adequate support um, is really key um, for at least half of those cases that we identified. Um, and then in terms of the prosecution, what we found in our research was that, um, and I sort of touched on this in the second half of the presentation, was that actually not a lot is known yet. And particularly in Australia, we haven't had that many cases. So we've had probably about 23, 25 successful cases of human trafficking um, in our system. So the, the judicial system, criminal justice um, actors really are not um, that trained and well-versed in what trafficking actually looks like. Um, and so that although judges may may recognise um, and criminal justice actors may recognise that these women or these offenders are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds. There's not a lot that's known about that. 
And what we found was that often the offenders don't have a lot of voice and often even victims don't have a lot of voice um, in those proceedings, which further limits our understandings. And I think those understandings are key in terms of effective prosecutions and then also prevention. Thank you, Nerida. Um, yes, there, there have been, I think you, you mentioned this in your article, um, or, it, or, or I've read it somewhere else, that, uh, that uh, past victimization should be taken into account when sentencing uh, offenders. So in the case when, when women who are them, themselves victims of trafficking, then let's say repay their debts or for whatever reason, uh, and went on to traffic others, um, that their, their past victimization should be taken into account and maybe they should receive some more lenient sentences, sentencing. Um, and okay, so now over to you, uh, Marika, with the same questions. Mm -hmm. For Boroslav, the non-punishment principle should apply because perhaps they um, are not traffickers but unidentified victims of trafficking, which I think is um, something that is kind of bubbling along under the whole conversation. Yeah. here. Um, no, look, I, I agree with Caitlin and, and Narita completely. I think um, both questions, prevention and prosecution, um, they're really the undercooked parts, particularly prevention. This is the, the piece of the counter-trafficking puzzle that I think we've all really, you know, dropped the ball on. Um, I, I guess what, what the articles that we're all discussing really point to is that the, um, the vulnerability factors to being trafficked are the same as the vulnerability factors to trafficking. And so if we can um, kind of reconceptualize vulnerability, so we're not just looking at how to stop one from becoming um, trafficked, but how to stop one from becoming a trafficker, uh, then that might get us um, somewhere further. But there's still so much that we need to understand before we do that, because I think we would all agree that counter trafficking, if we really wanted to stop it, it's not criminal justice response, it's economic, cultural, social, civil rights. I mean, that's what it is, isn't it? But that's a big, um, hard puzzle. Um, we also need to better understand, though, the, the um, wider aspects of this, because what we're talking about here is is kind of small time actors. We didn't get any kind of um, insight onto legal persons as traffickers. We haven't spoken about companies, um, you know, healthcare facilities that are engaged in trafficking um, for the purpose of organ removal, recruitment agencies that have kind of um, almost created a legitimate channel of, of trafficking. We didn't also talk about the, the state as traffickers, you know, what they're doing in through labour migration policies, through special economic zones and the exploitation that goes on there, um, you know, in diplomatic households. So there are other aspects to this that we really need to get um, to the heart at. But I think, you know, just to link it back to what we've been discussing about, I think a lot of um, our information and our approach comes from this push towards victim-centred approaches, and that is absolutely right that should be the heart of counter-trafficking response, but it may have also led to something of a blind spot when it comes to um, looking at who the perpetrators are. So, so we're really left with many questions about that. Um, and then to move on to your second question, Boroslav, about um, prosecution, uh, you know, as Caitlin said at the outset, like criminal justice is in many ways, it's a blunt instrument, isn't it, when we're talking about things that are as nuanced as this. And the traffickers that we've all been talking about 
are these really the bad guys who the international legal framework was trying to get at? And as I have said um, many times elsewhere, I think not. Um, we are really um, overlooking the transnational organised criminal involvement of this, and we need to get serious about that. So, But when we're talking about the types of traffickers that we have been, who are very often former victims, um, disadvantaged, advantage people who are doing whatever they can to support their families and get by, then we need to think about whether the convictions that they're getting, um, you know, are they proportionate? Are they dissuasive? Um, are they, you know, having any effect? Or are they maybe just a distraction from um, the state's failure to get at the really bad guys um, in all of this? And I, I think this is where we have a bit of a misconnect. With, we're misapplying serious criminal justice response. Um, so the restorative justice points, the alternative justice points that, that Narita and Caitlin spoke to, they're absolutely essential if we're going to continue to um, look at these people as traffickers. But we cannot overlook the, the real traffickers being serious organised um, crime groups. So, yes, I, I think the key point is that if we just keep on um, prosecuting and convicting um, this kind of tragic rabble of people, it will just go on and on and on. So we need to rejig something in order to address vulnerability and marginalization, both to victimization and to offending. Thanks, Marika. Um, so that leads me to, to uh, one of the questions we received. I think it was the last one, and I was I, I was meaning to go by the order in which we received them, but I think this <clears throat> sorry this discussion um, uh, is sort of um, or this question uh, links with the discussion. And the question was uh, something like, how do we get to the bigger fish? How do we go after the bigger fish? <laughs> so what, what do we do about the traffickers who are uh, organized criminal syndicates and who are, uh, you know, evil people with evil intentions? Um, okay, Marika, uh, your microphone is unmuted. <laughs> how do we... <laughs> Um, well, okay, it's, I, I think a key challenge in this, I think the reason that the prosecutions have been of the, the, the little fish, as, as we call them, is because um, it's easier to just get at what's in front of you. So very often states haven't got the resources, the capacity or the incentive to go after the bigger fish because there's a lot more risk, there's a lot more challenge, um, and that really is where a strong criminal justice approach needs to come into play. So I think that what we, you know, as, as a start, you know, while we're talking about kind of alleviating the criminal justice response um, as it's currently being applied, we also need to ramp it up um, in terms of strengthening capacity to cooperate across borders because transnational organised crime groups are consciously taking advantage of this low capacity. Um, and so I think we, we need to first start um, identifying them and calling them out as traffickers and then hopefully incentivizing states um, to actually go after them rather than, um, you know, for instance, donors being satisfied with with low-level prosecutions, start actually speaking about them more. We, you know, start actually saying, well, yes, you prosecuted this former victim who is now recruiting other people, um, but how about this known criminal who is sitting in your jurisdiction um, making actually millions of dollars from exploited people? And there's other panels going on at this 24-hour conference that are addressing um, that really serious end of trafficking. So I think the first thing we need to do is start calling out the lack of response. Caitlin, Merida, would you like to answer this question? 
I'm not sure that I have the answer or anything better than uh, what Marie Cruz just so eloquently um, expressed. I guess it speaks to the heart of one of the issues, and and I was thinking this when um, after my presentation and when listening to Marika is that there's a real challenge with data on human trafficking, and so a limitation of um, this study that I presented is that I'm looking at the, we we looked at uh, cases that were prosecuted, and and that's a very very small number, and again that's the easy prosecutions, you know, getting a successful conviction is so difficult, this is the small fish that are easy to catch. Um, and also I had that thought that, you know, we're saying that there's a lot of women trafficking offenders, but that again is re reflecting this skewed data in the fact that women are the ones that are being caught and prosecuted. Women are the ones that are closest to the victims and playing those close roles, whereas the men may be further removed. Often in some of the trafficking cases in Australia, the women convicted had boyfriends who also played a part, who either got lesser sentences or who did not get convicted. So uh, again, that's a bit of a skewed picture about what, what is happening. Um, and it, it is a problem that then our solutions are going to be focused around that. So um, I guess the, that's more of a comment and just a precaution that we need to be mindful of the, the real limitations um, that are reflecting and sort of perpetuating the problem, I suppose. Yeah, I don't, I don't have much to add, but I do, did just want to um, maybe stress that, particularly in developing countries, and particularly you know in Asia where trafficking is extremely prevalent um, from many poor, quite poor countries, the the issue of resources, which Marika mentioned, resources for law enforcement is a huge one. Um, Cross-border collaboration as well, that also requires, you know, resources and capacity building. But having enough people and enough money to investigate bigger cases is a real challenge. Um, but I, I think another thing is we, we also need to think about, you know, the, the perverse um, negative incentives that some of our, our, our focus creates. So, you know, there, there's a very big focus, for example, in the US State Department tip report, there's a big focus on numbers of prosecutions. Um, and that can mean that, you know, the, the police then are trying to, you know, build up the numbers by going after all the small fish, um, which they can prosecute in a few months, with a few months investigation, whereas, you know, the big ones might take years to to do the investigations and get the arrests and everything like that. So it doesn't uh, it it doesn't help you reach the numbers and you know get a big tick from the State Department. So I think you know we we need to be careful. Um, we definitely need to focus on law enforcement, um, but we need to be careful about what incentives we're we're giving law enforcement officers. Well, I I think in in any case, um, you know, of course we are talking about catching traffickers, but there is also the and the, the prevention aspect towards victims of providing socioeconomic opportunities uh, and decent work opportunities for potential victims to could dis disrupt, let's say, the, the activities of traffickers. Okay, we have uh, uh, 13 more minutes, so let's uh, move on to some of the other questions we received. Um, one was, is there a re relationship between trafficking in persons and drug trafficking? Would anyone like uh, to answer this question that that was absolutely there is a link I'll, I'll just i'll jump in first on that i think there's no question i think when it comes to trafficking in person certainly as it exists as a transnational organized crime we're seeing increasing um polycriminality we're seeing 
increasing um, use of um, traffic victims to traffic drugs um, or to indeed cultivate drugs. You know, there's been a lot of um, fascinating case law on that. Um, we've got the county lines situations in the UK. We've got Vietnamese victims trafficked to the UK to, to cultivate drugs. Um, in Southeast Asia, we have um, a lot of people, women particularly, being used as drug mules. Um, and again, I think this is quite deliberate from, from the big players here uh, because um, there is such a, you know, as, as Caitlin just said, that the resources lacking to, to go after the big guys. It's the front line of what they see that they will prosecute. And so this means that victims are very much being thrown into um, the highest risk of being prosecuted and in the absence of the non-punishment principle um, combined with incentives to achieve arrests and prosecutions for drug trafficking then what you have is victims of trafficking who are prosecuted as drug traffickers which is absolutely tragic particularly in countries where we have serious penalties including the death penalty attaching to drug related offences so yes there is a link um, the traffickers uh, are doing a great job of um, taking advantage of all of the weaknesses that we've been discussing um, and I think this is something that needs to be talked about a, a lot more in terms of making sure that we are um, not throwing victims of trafficking in jail or indeed um, sending them to death, which is a reality. So the next question is, I guess, also similar to what uh, we've been discussing for most of this webinar. Uh, would you say that all human trafficking is poverty driven and where to draw the line? What is poverty? Um, so I, I would like to say that uh, we wouldn't say, right, that all human trafficking is poverty driven, like we uh, explained that there are reasons why the, the articles in the special issue and, and in general, many of the convicted traffickers are all uh, small fish, uh, as we were saying, in the low hanging fruit. Um, but I think we all know that there are um, criminal organizations, uh, mafia-type syndicates who, who engage in human trafficking for profit. Um, I think maybe, although I, I, yeah, I don't know if uh, I should be, you know, naming regions, but I think maybe Eastern Europe and Central America um, perhaps have more organized crimes, cartels, organized crime groups, cartels and such than Southeast Asia or Africa. Um, but yeah, for sure, some of it is, uh, let's say, greed driven, right? Or, um, you know, crime, crime driven. Um, uh, Caitlin, maybe you, yeah. Yep, I'll jump in on that one. Um, I think, yeah, I think that it, this, um, it's a great question and it gives us this sort of opportunity to to, you know the, the disinformation that we have of about the the traffickers just kind of uh, adds to the picture that we have about the complexities of what's driving human trafficking you know so I don't I don't think we can easily say you know it's all about poverty or it's all about gender or it's all about you know lack of educational opportunities or anything it's all of those things um, and many others you know and so we we need to be, mindful of that and and be a bit more sophisticated in our in our understandings of trafficking and and what that also means is that there's no one size fits all solution to 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 ending trafficking or to solving problems so i think you know we've all talked about 
the need for both law enforcement and restorative justice me methods. Um, and there's also a need for a wide range of prevention activities that can, you know, target the specific type of trafficking form of uh, the routes, the the vulnerable people, and the and the types of traffickers in in a very specific region. So I think there there are really um, you know many things going on in in the you know the the uh, the main form of trafficking in Vietnam that that we see is is this trafficking across to into forced marriages in China um and men, most of that it's not involving criminal syndicates or or organized crime at all we're pretty confident that most of it is fairly opportunistic um in some cases people think they're helping you know they think they're getting a good marriage for a for a very poor family you know a girl from a very poor family and they think it's going to be a good thing so so often you know that 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 can be an issue as well um but there's also the pool factors you know the the fact that there's a shortage of chinese women is not something we can do much about right now um that anyone can do much about actually right now um so you know so those pool factors also need to be taken into account and that's also what's driving the the trafficking is you know there's there's push and pull factors on both sides so it is a very complex picture and i think you know we we often get caught up because we talk about human trafficking as though it's one thing and it's really not it's a whole wide range of different crimes and it takes different forms in different geographical areas you know we even see in vietnam different neighboring provinces will have very different characteristics of trafficking um just because of their their different historical and and cultural and social situations so we need to be more sophisticated i think and and all of this information that we're getting is is helping us to understand better and to respond better these were yeah Th thank you caitlin these were all great points <clears throat> okay we only have about five minutes left so um i want to mention another question uh, that we received about the role of religious and ritual practices in human trafficking um is this something that um anyone feels uh competent to 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 uh, answer Competent is a stretch, Bobby, but I can certainly <laughs> offer a couple of reflections on it. Um, look, I, I think I think the role that religion has played in this, um, in terms of how it's used as a modus operandi, um, depending on the regions and where people come from. For instance, we have um, the practice of, of juju rituals to bind someone um, essentially to their trafficker to to really solidify um, a, an arrangement between them, and that's quite a common. Um, scenario that we see. So that's a, that's a form of coercion or in, in kind of legal terms, that would be abuse of a position of vulnerability. You know, you or I cannot see what binds a person to, to that relationship, but um, that exists there, which is why in some countries there are even specialists who can undo curses um, to lift people from it. Um, I think the other um, aspect that we might be able to see is in the really complex phenomenon of um, people who are trafficked into terrorism scenarios 
um, and there the brainwashing and indoctrination, particularly of young people who will die for a religious cause, um, is again one of those invisible binds that can be stronger than you know an actual physical bind. Um, but again, so complex in terms of how it manifests. Uh, so yes, I think there is a link. But on the positive side as well, I think the religious community has a um, hugely significant role to play in all of this in terms of um, undoing that um, you know the weaponization of ideology as a tool for traffickers. So um, maybe something for us to chew on a bit more. In in the in the article by Milena Rizzotti that you mentioned uh, earlier, which is about the trafficking of Nigerian women to to Italy, I think she she mentioned that um, a Nigerian um, what is it Archbishop or something had somehow removed all the all the um, oaths from victims yeah. of trafficking, right? Exactly. Yeah, because one, you know, they, victims who are under that kind of that kind of curse or that juju connection, um, unable to even uh, work with criminal justice practitioners, they won't even be able to communicate with social workers who are trying to identify them. And so, lifting that curse can actually free them to, um, you know, help the good guys help them. And that's um, something that yes, Rizzotti brought up in her article, but it's also something I've I've encountered in many other regions as well where, where juju practitioners will support counter trafficking efforts okay and then we we have one new question what role in human trafficking does the emirates as a region plays i assume this means the united arab emirates as the, the country um and i yeah uh, I, i'm not sure what what exactly the question is but i i think we would all agree that it's a destination country um, where mostly, uh, I mean, probably women both as domestic workers, uh, women are trafficked both as domestic workers and uh, in the sex industry, and maybe also men for all kinds of uh, manual labor. It's, uh, it's a country that has a very high number of migrant workers who often um yeah recruited uh, with huge debts and live in horrible conditions and are sometimes not paid or not paid enough or not paid overtime and experience many rights human rights violations and labor rights violations um that are probably similar to to trafficking but I, to my knowledge it's not i think the issue is not very um popular in the country maybe i don't know if uh, the rest of you know like what is the uae's response to trafficking yeah i don't think we have time to go in it but yes agree bobby also um potentially transit to um southeast asia increasingly as southeast asian countries become more of a global destination for trafficking so yeah key role should be playing a more active role in counter trafficking Right, so we have less than one minute now. Uh, let me just say thank you so much to, to the three speakers and to everyone who listened and asked questions. And yeah, stayed with us through all of this time. Thank you, um, everyone, um, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. This talk was just one of 85 from this year's 24-hour conference on global organized crime. To get access to the rest, head over to oc24.haysummit.com. Thanks for listening.